Hey everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts, Jess and Alice. This week, we're going back to the OG true crime drama show out there. It's CSI, and we're watching Season 1, Episode 21, titled Justice is Served. And just a quick trigger warning for this episode, a main portion of this discusses child death, so if that's something that you aren't comfortable listening to, we understand and we love you, and we'll catch you in the next episode. But if you are sticking around for this one, let's get into it. So we open on a jogger, jogging, as they do, and we see him slow down when he hears growling. And I don't know if you had the same thought I did, but i it's always the jogger who finds the body. So I thought he was going to find someone while he was jogging. But no, an animal attacks him and he becomes the body <laughs> to be found maybe by another jogger. We- oh, how the tables have turned. <laughs> CSI keeping us on our toes. <laughs> so then we cut to the CSI team on the trail at night investigating the jogger's body. The body was found downhill and Grissom sees drag marks down the hill, making him think that the jogger was either dragged or slid down the hill from the trail. He also has some pretty deep wounds on his abdomen, and one investigator says that it looks like the jogger picked the wrong time to run alone, because dusk is when the animals come out. They think it might have been a mountain lion. However, Grissom takes a look at the wound and says that the mountain lion must be smart, because it looks like someone used a scalpel. Classic Grissom sarcasm. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun! Dun, dun, dun. So, back at the lab, Catherine is taking over a case of a six-year-old who died at a carnival. She goes to the carnival to investigate. In the morgue, the Emmy is looking over the jogger case and says that they aren't dealing with any kind of big cat. He says that cats will play fight and bite and scratch, but there are no signs of claw marks on the victim. The Emmy thinks that the teeth marks look canine. So adult dogs have 42 teeth, and when viewed from the front, a normal scissor bite shows a total of 12 incisor teeth and 4 canine teeth. There should be six incisor teeth in the maxilla, three on the right and three on the left of the midline. Adult cats have 30 teeth consisting of three incisor teeth, one canine tooth, three premolar teeth, and one molar tooth in each of the right and the left maxilla. And three incisor teeth, one canine, two premolar teeth, and one molar tooth in each of the right and left mandibles. That was a mouthful. No pun intended. I know we're talking about teeth. Their normal occlusion is classified as a scissor bite, similar to a dog, but with a slight difference. The upper and lower incisor teeth in a cat or a feline would normally align similar to dogs with maxillary incisor slightly overlapping the mandibular incisors. So in some breeds, such as a Persian cat, the incisor alignment is level, which is referred to as a level bite. So back in the show, there's some bite wounds on the neck, and it looks like they went right through the jugular. So the jugular vein is actually a set of three veins, the exterior jugular, the anterior jugular, and the interior jugular. And they are the veins that are responsible for returning blood from the brain back to the heart. So they return deoxygenated blood back to the heart. The ME wants to make a mold of the canine bite on the neck in order to narrow it down to the breed of the dog that bit this jogger. The ME goes on to say that there were also scalpel marks on the jogger, as Grissom said, and that his organs were removed. Maybe they didn't get a close enough look at the scene, but I'm like, did they notice that some of the organs were gone <laughs> at the scene? I, I didn't notice that when, like, the episode was actually playing and I was watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he wasn't fully, like, they didn't do, like, a Y incision and take everything out like we do, but um, it was more just, like, in his abdomen. 
like on the right side of his abdomen, kind of where his liver would be, there was a huge incision. So he says whoever did this knew how to handle a scalpel. And Grissom says that they must be looking for someone with two legs and a medical degree. Not a dog. (laughs) If the dog walks on two legs and has a medical degree, I'd watch that show. (laughs) A dog that walks on two legs has a medical degree and is also a serial killer. Come on. I'd watch it. Oh, I was going to, my brain was going to a really bad Disney show. Oh. A dog with a medical degree. A dog with a blog and a dog with a (laughs) medical degree who blogs about (laughs) his medical degree. Yours kind of sounds like a horror movie. That tracks for our personalities. (laughs) But I would like to note that just because they know how to use a scalpel doesn't mean they have a medical degree because, hey, Jess and I know our way around a scalpel too and we don't have medical degrees. I've been handling a scalpel now for three years, and I have no plan on going to med school at all. I've been handling a scalpel, if I include my time as an anatomy TA, that will be about two years now. And we're, we're pretty good at what we do. Yeah. No brag. Slight brag. We're not a dog with a medical degree, but <laughs> hey, we're pretty good at our jobs. So Catherine and Sarah go to the carnival to investigate, and the six-year-old's body is out in front of a carnival ride and Catherine demands that the coroner get her a new body bag even though the one that he was going to use had been cleaned and disinfected and I was wondering do they made it seem like this is normal practice like oh yeah we disinfect them with every case do do other places reuse body bags so this is funny because I had my fiance Dom watch this with me when I uh, was like taking my notes and everything and he was in the kitchen when this episode happened, and he turned to me and he was like, is that not what you do? I was like, no, everybody has a new body bag. Is this what other people do? Do other offices reuse bags? Because our, like, cases come in, our transporters put them in a bag, and then they stay in that bag because then the funeral home will pick them up. So are our funeral homes bringing back? body bags yeah that was my like is that just the bag for transport that he's using in the show do they get a new body bag in the morgue well we never see them I in mean, body bags in the morgue i was just gonna <laughs> say in the morgue we never see, so do they just like unload them and then they go in the cooler they go and they're in the never cooler in without a bag. body bag whenever we see them in those weird drawer coolers they never have a body bag. So this is just solely for transportation, I think. I That's so weird. Is this just for TV? I, I know that's part <laughs> of our podcast is finding out if this is just for TV, but this isn't how we do things. I was like appalled when they said, get her a new body bag because you can't reuse it. I was like, what? And yeah, everybody thought she was crazy. They're like, oh, well, why do we have to get her a new body bag? And I'm like, oh, what? Is this a thing? It's so weird. I've never once thought about reusing a body bag. No, we yeah, like you said, when they're released, it goes with the funeral home. Like, I... All right, anybody else out there who might know the answer as to why someone might reuse a body bag? <laughs> I don't know. I never heard of this. I don't know if it's a red flag territory, but it, it's an iffy. It's it iffy. If, it's iffy, which is becoming our new thing. We have a lot of, like, on-the-fence things. So, anyway, Sarah goes to talk to the girl's mother while Catherine handles the crime scene. The mother says that one minute the girl was laughing and holding her hand and the next minute she was gone. They flash back to the two of them on the ride together. They're in like a tunnel of love thing. And we see Sandy, the girl, fall into the water and the mother yelling, unable to find her. By the time the operator stopped the ride, Sandy, the girl, was already dead. Also, all while this is going on, the carnival is still happening behind them. 
there are like people walking around with balloons like there's crime scene too and in like they, the middle of the crime they scene didn't even cover the little girl's body no she was fully out in the open and there's people it was and it was it was like you'd think if the carnival was still open people would be crowding around this yeah scene. No, people are just going around with their cotton candy going on other rides and i'm like what is happening at this carnival wouldn't something like a dead child like not just shut down the ride but also shut down the carnival maybe for the investigation like what if the person who maybe they like put it on lockdown like what if the person who killed her is like still at the carnival just like enjoying themselves <laughs> like what for real at least for the night like i i don't know it felt weird to me but another another iffy so back to the jogger case two of the csis go to the area where the jogger was found to collect dog scat aka poop I always think scat is a very funny name for poop. I want to meet the person who came up with that name. (laughs) It's supposed to be like the professional term for it too, but it just sounds so funny to me. So what they didn't anticipate was how many dogs would be walking in this area and leaving behind all their scat. The glamour of forensics jobs. So they find what looks like dirty ice and end up taking it into evidence. And back at the carnival, one of the workers says that tunnel of love was their safest ride and he didn't know anything could go wrong until that car came out of the tunnel with a screaming mother missing her child as soon as the mother came out screaming he stopped the ride Catherine looks at the seatbelts on the car and sees that it's loose and the worker says he checks the seatbelts every morning but he keeps them loose because it's a tunnel of love ride and people want to quote get up close and personal Catherine goes into the ride and looks along the water, and she finds part of the track that holds the cars in place looks like it was just recently repaired, and she also finds a hammer in the water. So she takes the hammer, and she goes to talk to the owner of the carnival and accuses him of hiding the evidence. She says that he must have sent a worker in there to fix the track where Sandy's body was found to cover up that the track was broken in the first place. She then makes him give his urine for a drug screen because she says in Nevada, it's the law that when an accident happens, drug tests are mandatory, which after he leaves, we find out isn't entirely true. So back at the lab, the mold for the dog bite on the jogger has come back with 41 teeth, according to the lab tech. And like we said earlier, most dogs have 42 teeth. So yeah, we said adult dogs have 42 permanent teeth. And for reference, adult humans have 32 teeth. So the eruption of adult teeth in dogs can occur between three to seven months of age. And before that, when they are puppies, they're originally born toothless before getting their non-permanent puppy teeth, which they'll have 28 of. So this lab tech also found paw prints all over the victim's clothes that indicate that this dog was at least 100 pounds. But Grissom already knew this because he's always on top of it. And the dental mold indicated that the dog was a Great Dane Mastiff mix. And there are only 40 Dane or Dane mixes registered in the area, so Grissom is going to look up if any of them are due for dental work. The two CSIs that collected the scat from the crime scene are looking at the samples they collected in lab, but they haven't found anything yet that contains human tissue. Grissom gets an ID on the dog and finds out that this dog has a record of biting a gas man that was checking the meter and took out a chunk of this man's thigh and severed one of his testicles. That's a vicious dog. Oh my god. Yeah. Just like... A vicious dog. So Grissom and a detective go to the dog owner's house, and a woman named Dr. Sarah Hillridge answers the door, along with her giant Dane mix, who just jumps right up on Grissom and seems pretty friendly. And Dr. Hillbridge says that this dog's name is Simba, and Grissom tells her that she has a problem, and this doctor just kind of goes, oh no, not again. In almost like a, oh, such a silly dog kind of way. Not as if 
she's alarmed at all by the fact that there's detectives and CSI teams. She's so chill about it. At her door. And like the detective almost pulled his gun when the dog jumped up and she's just cool as a cucumber. She's way too chill. Grissom talks to the doctor alone and she asks why they think Simba was involved in the jogger's death. And Grissom brings up the previous complaints about her dog. And she says, oh, that was my old dog, Dickie. And he was so aggressive and that's why I put him down. She says Simba just gets out of the yard a lot and wrestles with the neighbor's garbage cans. But why would a whole CSI team and a detective show up for that lady? Be realistic here. Yeah. (laughs) Grissom brings up Simba's missing tooth, which matches the description of the dog they're looking for. But the doctor still says that Simba is not a violent dog. However, they're still taking the dog into custody. And they like, kind of just like arrest the dog. I was <laughs> I was so confused at that part. They're just like animal controls taking him. And I'm, I'm, in my head, and I was like, oh, he's going to go into a little prison. I think they even say like, oh, yeah, we got to bring him downtown. It's just this, yeah. <laughs> this derpy dog just sitting there. <laughs> so Grissom asks Dr. Hilberg what her medical specialty is. And she says it's nutrition and that most of her patients are professional athletes. She says that the name of the jogger, Terry Manning, doesn't ring a bell and then tells Grissom to let her know when she can pick up her dog. Back at the lab, one of the techs is doing the talk screen on the urine from the carnival worker, but the talk screen came back clean. But it was positive for a synthetic estrogen, which is birth control. Catherine guesses that he probably keeps a stash of other people's urine in his trailer in case he ever has to do a random drug screen. Sarah calls OSHA and finds out that the carnival they're investigating has violations in eight states and half the workers have records. And the owner, who told them his name was Pickens, is actually a man named Roger Pete, and he's a convicted sex offender on parole. They bring him in for questioning, and he asked... He says that his offense was that he slept with a minor who was 16 and a half, but claims that he didn't know because from the neck down, she looked, quote, all grown up and cue me barfing because this man is disgusting. I I know he's an actor, but like, I feel like I've heard gross men say stuff like that. And it's so scummy. It like... It makes me feel like I need a shower. Like, it's just so gross. Yeah. huh He says he didn't have anything to do with the dead six-year-old, and when the woman came back from the Tunnel of Love screaming, he and his co-worker Joe hit the kill switch and found Sandy lying face down in the pool of water. He didn't do anything because he knew that she was dead already. But Catherine thinks that it's suspicious that Pickens was hanging around the only ride that took children into the dark and thinks that he pulled Sarah off of the car. Back to the jogger slash dog case, they get a mold of Simba's teeth and they're comparing it to the mold from the bite mark on the victim and they see that it's a perfect match for this bite. So I've never had to take a mold for a bite mark evidence or or anything like that, but I did some research on techniques for making a dental mold from a bite mark and the paper that Alice and I read said materials needed for obtaining a bite mark impression from skin include one a light-bodied permlastic base and catalyst yeah it's a type of like it's literally a type of dental like mold gel type thing it's it's the brand name is called it's a like an adhesive you need a spatula a paper mixing pad a rubber based syringe a three inch by three inch square gauze and a dental dye stone and there's eight steps that are involved in obtaining a bite mark impression, starting with mixing of the permelastic base and catalyst 
using the spatula and continuing with applying the mixture to the bite mark indentations in the skin using the rubber-based syringe. And then gauze is applied over this area covered by the mixture, which is allowed to harden for about five minutes. And then dental dye is mixed with a small amount of water and placed on top of the gauze surface. And then after those five minutes, the mold is then gently removed and then it's stored at room temperature. So I know that we have like bite marks um, and like teeth molds at our office and they're literally just sitting in a box room temperature. But if you ever wanted to know how to take a mold, now you do. Yeah, I know. Actually, no, we didn't do this in school because I was still in school around COVID time. So we had to like keep masks on and they, like originally part of the program for one of our courses was like practicing taking a dental mold of like the actual teeth not like a bite mark but we didn't I didn't get to do it because it was all online at my point we were in person at that point but we were still we were in class and we were sitting like every other seat and had masks on so they weren't about to be like all right take your masks off and open your mouths Mm -hmm. wide and take a dental mold of yourself and breathe all over all these things so we didn't get to do it but yeah we learned how that was our bite mark impression course Mm mm-hmm So back in the show, Grissom says they still need more evidence like human tissue in Simba's scat. One of the CSIs says they did find Great Dane-sized scat containing premium pet store kibble at the scene, so now they need to find out what food Dr. Hillridge feeds her dog. And they also found, so the dirty ice that they found at the scene, at the crime scene, didn't melt, but it, it evaporated. So that means that it's dry ice. And dry ice is the solid form of CO2. And at normal atmospheric pressure, it does not have a solid state and it will go directly from a solid to a gas. And surgical teams use dry ice to transport organs for transplant. And Dom looked at me at this point and he goes, is that true? And I was like, yeah, I used dry ice when I was transporting and like shipping human parts for when I was working at the whole body donation center, we had dry ice for certain types of tissue that were going to be uh, like ready to use tissue or we use dry ice if we were shipping international tissue um, like overseas. So we knew it would stay really cold for a long time. Yeah, I was going to say you would know because you have experience doing that. Yeah, so that is true. So the team goes to investigate Dr. Hillridge's house. They did get a warrant, but maybe we just didn't see it. Yeah, I think she says something later on about getting a warrant. And one of the CSIs collects scat from the yard, and Grissom asked Dr. Hillridge if she minds if he looks in her freezer. She says she has a patient coming in 20 minutes and that he can rifle around till then, but she will not leave her place of business. Grissom looks in the freezer and finds Tupperware filled with meats and other foods and it's all very well organized almost like too organized i this is immediately (laughs) like i was already suspicious of her because she seemed just too Uh uh-huh composed and i was just like all right you not that having an organized fridge it means you're a killer yeah killer but just everything combined and like i was uh, yeah i was like she "Mm." just has like zero emotion throughout this entire episode which makes her so sus including what she's about to say next so he asked dr hillridge if she'll be upset if they have to put her dog down and she reacts the most weird way possible and she says she doesn't get attached to things and she accepts the evolution of change and that no one gets out of life alive who says that about their dog What normal person says that about their dog? Not a normal person. Mm -mm. No spoilers, but not a normal person says that. Yeah, sorry, guys. (laughs) (laughs) So she then says that if people treat their bodies like temples, 
they can cheat time. She then gets really close to Grism with a knife and a veggie that she was cutting and says that the bottom rims of his eyes are pale, meaning that he's low in folic acid and that he should eat more beets. So I think she's basically saying that he's anemic, which is when someone's blood produces a lower than normal amount of healthy red blood cells and folate deficiency. Anemia is related to not enough folic acid in someone's diet, which then leads to anemia. And folic acid is a B vitamin that helps your body make red blood cells. So Hillridge says that beets have a 54.5% of the RDA recommended daily allowance. So according to Healthline, one cup of red beets contains 148 milligrams of folic acid, which is 37% of the recommended daily allowance. Grisms asks what med school she attended, and she asks if that will really help with their investigation. He says it was all just based on the impression he got from how she held the knife when she was cutting the beets. She says she was in the CIA. Not that CIA. The Culinary Institute of America. But she never answers the med school question. She doesn't. So she's just really good with a knife. I was waiting for a reveal that she's not actually a doctor and that she's a fraud. (laughs) She never went to med school and she's just like winging it by as a nutritionist or something, scamming people. That wouldn't surprise me. I was waiting for that reveal. I was like, she never answered the med school question. She's talking about cooking school and CIA stuff and you'll see I at the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah. So she then asked Grism how someone chooses death as a profession, which I thought was funny because we get asked this question all the time. And Grism responds that it chose him. And I felt that on a spiritual level because it definitely chose me. I felt that. I felt it. It chose me. I've been weirdly obsessed with death from like a young (laughs) age. And I know that sounds upsetting, but like I've just been like fascinated with like biology and I don't know, death and like this is just like the perfect feel for me. I, I just love anatomy. I love doing autopsies, which is like probably the weirdest thing someone could say that they love doing autopsies. But I really do. People it's, who listen to this podcast get it. It's like solving a puzzle. And I just like to find out why. Mm-hmm. So she says super weirdly that one man's corpse is another man's candy. So I've never heard that saying before, but okay. Dead giveaway that she's a cannibal. <laughs> Dead giveaway. Are you kidding? Who says that? No one says this. No normal person says that. She's so like begging she's him. She's definitely a cannibal. She's begging him to realize that she's the cannibal. She like goes up to him with a knife in, her, in his face and is just like saying all these weird things about not caring about life. And She's like, it's almost too obvious where you candy? don't want to call her out on it. I know. I know. And this is very early on in the show. So it follows that rule that I mentioned last episode where it's like, oh, it's too early on in the episode. They haven't found their killer yet. But I don't know. She's... <laughs> She's looking pretty suspicious. But in this episode, they were focusing too much on her. So I was like, hmm, something's up. Maybe she's just really into cooking. <laughs> and dead people, which <laughs> seems like a bad combination. <laughs> it's a cannibal. So one of the CSIs calls Grism to the other room to show him surgical tools that he found. And the box says Emory Medical Supplies, Boston, Mass, 1875. They're antiques, but they're very well maintained. All right. Did you also want these tools like as soon as they're like absolutely they're like antique surgical tools and i'm like i would have those in my house if i could afford them i would have antique surgical tools that would be the perfect gift if anybody wanted to get me something vintage tools or like anything vintage anatomy related it's so freaking cool that's one of the reasons i love going to the marina museum is they have they have like antique medical tool set they have an antique autopsy set Mm -hmm. and it's so cool and i'm like 
See, I'd have that in my house. Like, all of the old vintage tools are so I cool. love Victorian era medicine because it's just, like, so bonkers to me. So, like, and that is right up my alley. Dave, it's just a free-for-all back then. Yeah. Oh, for real. It was crazy back then. But, yeah, anyway, as soon as they showed that, I was like, show me the tools. I want them. I was like, show me what they look like. <laughs> so what they find interesting is that she keeps them near the door, not in her office, almost like if she needs to take them out to do work she can. They're going to investigate and see if they can link these tools to the crime, and back in the morgue, the ME finishes the autopsy on the six-year-old and says the cause of death is drowning. The water was a foot and a half deep, and the victim is just about three feet tall. So they think that she had a minor concussion, or she was stunned by something, and then she went unconscious under the water. But otherwise, she should have been able to get out of the water pretty easily on her own. The ME says there's no head injury and the only injury he could find was a fractured forearm. Catherine asked if it was a spiral or a straight fracture. So there's various types of fractures and that's all depending on how the bone breaks. So a straight or a linear fracture is a break parallel to the bone's axis. A spiral fracture is a fracture that happens when one part of the bone is twisted and broken. Like if someone were to grab and twist your arm with enough force, they could break it and fracture it that way. So the team looks at the x-ray and they see that it's a spiral fracture, meaning that somebody twisted this girl's arm hard enough to break it. Sarah asked if the injury was perimortem, which means close to the time of death, and the ME says that the swelling takes at least two to four minutes of active circulation, and there's no swelling of this injury, so it had to have happened just moments before she died. So it looks like someone yanked her out of the car, possibly in the dark, and the swelling in the arm will typically occur almost immediately after a bone breaks, because blood will rush to the area of the break um, to start the healing process, so the team thinks that Pickens yanked the girl out of the car, tried to take her to a second location, but the emergency doors on the ride were not operational, so he was trapped, panic, and he drowned her to hide the evidence. Catherine then asked the ME if he's going to rule this as a homicide, and the ME says that right now, without proof, it's between an accidental or an undetermined death. And I gave that a green flag. Right, because he's not just hopping on assuming it's a homicide. He's like, well, right now with the evidence I have, it's either undetermined or it looks like an accident. So, yeah. I think he's waiting for them to do more investigating and for them to get a little more answer out of what they're dealing with before mm-hmm. fully ruling it, um, like anything. Right, and like right now he's right. There's a little girl with a broken arm from a amusement park ride and that's all he has to go on right now so although he feels like it could be a homicide what he has in front of him it looks either accident or undetermined so they need to give him more evidence to rule it a homicide but Catherine is very adamant on him ruling it a homicide so she's going to get the proof that she needs so as a reminder there's five manners of death homicide which is uh the death at the hands of another suicide which is uh the death at the hands of oneself accidental undetermined and natural so Catherine goes out to the hall where she's approached by someone who asks for help and asks when her daughter is going to be released. So Catherine, who didn't meet the girl's mother at the scene because she was analyzing the crime scene while Sarah interviewed the mother, says that she isn't a coroner, but asks this woman 
what her daughter's name was. And the woman reveals that she's Sandy's mother. And Catherine says that she's so sorry for her loss. And then the woman asks if they found out what happened at the carnival. And Catherine says that she'd like to ask her a few questions. So Catherine asks if it were possible that someone reached into the car and pulled Sandy out. The woman says that she thought it was an accident. And then the woman says that you always read about how dangerous amusement parks are, but you never think anything bad will happen to you or your kid until it does. Catherine asks what happened when the woman went into the water to try and save her daughter and if she heard anything or sensed if anyone else was there in the dark. And the woman says she doesn't know and that everything happened so fast and that she was just focused on finding Sandy. Back to the other case, Grissom goes to question a funeral director who... We cut to them talking, and it seems like this funeral director is uneasy with Grissom's line of questioning, but Grissom says he's not there officially. He says he just wants the funeral director to act more as a consultant for the crime lab and asks him what he knows about organ theft. Just casual. The funeral director says that if he were in that business, he wouldn't need to worry about getting paid. He says that there are places overseas that will pay 50 grand for one lung and 60 grand for a heart. Grissom asks how he knows this, and he responds by saying that he overheard it at a last, like at the last funeral director's convention. Are there other conventions in the death field that sound really fun like this? Can we have an autopsy tech convention? <gasps> Let's start one. So Grissom asks about the local market for organs, and the funeral director says it's probably pretty good since this is literally a life or death scenario. Grissom asks if someone were disemboweled and their liver were taken, how much would that go for? And then this funeral director gets really creepy and gives like a list off the top of his head of all the prices of pretty much every organ. And he says the liver would probably go for 40 grand and the bowel could go for 30 grand. And it's becoming clear that this man knows more about black market organs than he's letting on. And he probably didn't just overhear this at a convention. It's just super creepy. All these creepy (laughs) serial killer people. So back at the lab, one of the CSIs gets a match on the scat from the crime scene, and the scat found out the house. Except for one difference. The stuff in the backyard was full of human cellular tissue that matches the jogger's DNA. So they think they got the right dog. And I told told Jess this earlier when we were talking about the episode. I was so convinced that, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought there was going to be a dramatic reveal. That it was like human poop in the yard and then it was the lady's poop and she was like trying to throw them off. I think if CSI did that, that would be my stopping point in the show. <laughs> I was waiting. I was like, oh my God. Because he's like, it's the same except for one difference. And I was like, it's say it's human. human. <laughs> say it's human. And then he didn't. And I was like, oh, I'm just ridiculous. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh my I'm God. the only one that Could was you imagine? Of? The writer's room for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting. So I was just so convinced of this woman's guilt. I was like, it's her poop in the yard. (laughs) I just straight up didn't like this woman. And I'm just giving any excuse for it to be her. And that's where I was at this point in the episode. I just had to share it with you all. (laughs) Now they're going to see if they can connect Dr. Hillridge's antique surgical tools to the crime. So the CSI adds drop of reactant agents, one part leukomalachite and one part hydrogen peroxide. And the, 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 I'm sorry, I'm still laughing about the poop. Because <laughs> I'm fine. We're professional, I swear. <laughs> I'm just laughing at like how engrossed I was in this show. <laughs> you were so hoping. <laughs> I was, like I didn't even find it funny when I was watching. I was like, it's her poop. I was like dead serious. <laughs> But now that 
like, I can't believe how ridiculous that is. So the CSI adds drops of these reactive agents, and the swab turns blue, indicating that it is positive for human blood. So this technique, aka the leukomalachite green presumptive test for blood, is a catalytic test that is based on the peroxidase-like activity of hemoglobin. So hemoglobin can cleave oxygen molecules from H2O2, which is hydrogen peroxide, and catalyze a reaction from the reduced leukomalachite green in order to oxidize into a blue-green color. So in short, if there's blood, it's going to turn a blue-green color. So back at the carnival, the owner, Pickens, is trying to take his rides with him to the next stop on their, like, carnival tour, thinking there'd be nothing wrong with that, even though a child just died while there. And the CSI team gets a court order that the rides have to stay in Vegas. The CSIs that found the blood... So back... Sorry, I know we're jumping back and forth between these cases a lot, but that's, like, how the show is doing it. So we're back to the jogger scene. The CSIs that found blood on the scalpel and the surgical tools that belong to Dr. Hillridge bring this to Grissom, who says that if the doctor cut up the jogger, she didn't use these scalpels and these other tools because he had someone run a degradation test on the blood sample that they found, and they determined that the blood on the tools was 50 to 200 years old. So what this blood test was looking for was the blood's TSD, time since disposition. For TSD estimations, hemoglobin remains the primary biomolecule of interest, and this is because it comprises about 90% of the dry weight of red blood cells. So in a healthy person, there are three types of hemoglobin, deoxyhemoglobin, oxyhemoglobin, and methemoglobin. When blood is shed outside of the body, deoxyhemoglobin binds with the free oxygen in the air and becomes oxyhemoglobin. Then this oxyhemoglobin will oxidize to methemoglobin. But the enzymes responsible for converting methemoglobin back to deoxyhemoglobin are no longer present because of denaturation outside of the body. So degradation will continue because of this and other irreversible and reversible changes to the protein structure of hemoglobin, resulting in the formation of hemi and hemochrome. Eventually, over time, due to environmental stress, there will be more cellular damage and hemolysis, which is just the destruction of red blood cells. So anyway, this path of degradation can be useful in determining TSD. So in the show, they have discovered, due to the degradation levels of these bloods, or the blood on the tools, that the blood on the doctor's tools is, quote, antique, just like the scalpel, ruling out that it was used in the jogger's murder. So it was probably back from 1875, that blood. Or 50 years ago, which isn't 1875. What if it was used for a murder 50 (laughs) years ago? So Dr. Hillbridge comes into the lab of her own volition and brings Grissom folic acid to the point where I was like, are you flirting with him? She's just trying to insert herself into the case at every point. Do you like him? You're bringing him folic acid. (laughs) (laughs) She like likes him. I don't know. You don't just give folic acid to a guy. You only do that for guys that you like like. (laughs) It's like the check the box. Do you like me or do you like like me? She says that she was worried about his eyes. You only worry about guys' eyes if you have a crush on them. <laughs> it's on like it's on like the folic acid label. Check yes or no. Do you want to go out? She then says that she assumed her surgical tools came back clean. And she says her house felt crowded because of all the men that were sent there to investigate. And they were taking everything from her kitchen and her office. Grissom reveals that Dr. Hillridge had three prior complaints on three separate states for owning vicious dogs, and each complaint is from a mountain state, where a dog attack could be mistaken for a mountain lion attack. 
He then says that the jogger was missing several key organs, very healthy organs. She says that she thought Grissom was smarter than that, and that coenzyme Q could help with mental acuity. Okay, so at this point, we had to look into this to see if this was actually true. I was just so ready to call her out on her (laughs) bullshit. I'm like, I'm looking this up. We hate her. (laughs) So coenzyme Q10 is an antioxidant that your body makes naturally and helps cell growth and maintenance. However, studies that we found showed blood levels of coenzyme Q10 were reportedly similar in people with and without Mild cognitive impairment, suggesting that there's no association between lowered coenzyme Q10 concentrations and cognitive decline. And in a 16-week blind study randomized clinical trial with 78 Alzheimer's patients, coenzyme Q10 supplementation failed to improve cognitive ability. In small clinical trials, coenzyme Q10 supplementation has also failed to help patients with other neurodegenerative conditions like Huntington's disease, Parkinson's disease, and ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. So although preclinical trials on Alzheimer's and dementia suggest that coenzyme Q10 supplements could improve memory skills and cognitive abilities. So two CSIs start investigating everything from the kitchen for any sign of blood and using what I assume is Luminol or Blue Star and they find evidence of blood in the blender. So Grism says that she used that blender yesterday right in front of him and tells them to get DNA from the blood and see if it's a match for the joggers. There's a glass that also came back positive for blood so it looks like she isn't selling the organs on the black market. She's eating them because she's a cannibal we knew it ah i was so excited when it was revealed and he's like she was doing it right in front of me i was like she was begging you to notice like she wanted she was you to doing it because it, it was so obvious and you would never point it out she has a crush on you and she wants you to know that she's a cannibal <laughs> she wants to know if you're into it check the box she's over there mate i was just about to make a really bad pun do it now i'm gonna do it anyway she was making a banana bowl smoothie <laughs> instead, of, instead of bananas. <laughs> so back at the carnival, they're doing a recreation of what could have happened to the little girl Sandy. And based on their theory, a loose seatbelt allowed Pickens to yank Sandy out of her seat. That's, her, that's the whole thing that they're going on. So the mom was sitting on the left and Sandy was on the right. So Catherine gets in the car. And she is sitting where the mother was sitting, and they put a dummy in the spot where Sandy was, which weighs roughly around the same weight that Sandy did and where she would have been sitting. Catherine puts the loose seatbelt over herself and the dummy, and they start the ride, and different techs along the little track, they try to pull the dummy out from various angles, behind the car, from the sides, but they're unable to get the dummy out. So the belt wasn't loose enough to get the little girl out of the seat, so it wasn't Pickens. The only person left who would have anything to do with the little girl falling out of her seat and into the water is the person who was sitting right next to her, her mother. Catherine says that when she was asking the mother about the accident, the mother's eyes were pointing in the wrong direction. They were pointing to the left. And she says when people are remembering, they look to the right, and when they're creating something in their heads, they look to the left. So after some research, we're definitely going to give this a red flag because there is no solid evidence to back this up. And this eye direction theory, aka the neuro-linguistic programming, was developed back in 1975 by Richard Blander and John Grinder. 
They claim that someone would look up and to the right if they were pulling information from a memory, aka visual recall, and that someone constructing an idea not from memory would look toward the top left of the visual field, which they called the visual construct. But in 2012, there were three studies done to test these claims. In the first study, right-handed patients were filmed both while lying and telling the truth. Patients were aware that the study was related to lying, but they were not told that their eye movements would be tracked. So while answering a series of questions, researchers tracked the number of times a patient looked up and to the right or up and to the left. These movements were coded and compared to what NLP experts hypothesized, and the study results did not support the hypothesis that upper right gaze indicates lying, nor that uh, looking up and to the left indicates truthfulness. And, they, and there was a second experiment done where 50 patients were split into two equal parts. They were asked to watch the interviews recorded in the first study. One group of participants was told about the NLP eye movement theory and the other was not, and all participants marked whether they believed the subjects in the videos were lying or telling the truth. They also indicated how confident they were in their observation, and the results showed no difference between the accuracy or confidence of the two groups in their assessment of the videos. So these results provide no proof for NLP lie detection claims. And then in the final experiment, two independent raiders watched videos of known liars and truth tellers, all the videos viewed by the raiders, and there were no instances of upper left or upper right gazes. And none of these studies provide any evidence that the NLP theory of eye movement and lie detection are reliable or accurate. So don't go staring at people's eyes to try and figure out if they're telling the truth or trying to catch them in a lie. Because it's all fake. I was trying, I was joking around with Costa and I was asking him questions and he, he didn't know I was doing this. I was, I had just watched this episode and I'm like, hey, do you like me? And he's like, yes. <laughs> and I'm like, you looked to the left, you're lying. And he's like, what did what is happening what did you just watch and i was like they told me on csi that you're lying you don't like me because <laughs> you know csi is fact it's bible we live by csi exactly how our jobs work even though they barely show our jobs because we're not csis but i still love the show we're constantly out in the field we're constantly picking up poop i'm actually sure that some csi have. i think they had an episode of crime scene queens where the, i can't remember if it was shelly or laura mentioned there was like one scene where they almost had to like bring dog poop. Yeah, back I remember to that lab, one. But that was like, one of their first ones. They fought on it. They're like, they're like, this isn't relevant to the case. We don't need to bring this poop with us. So this happens, guys. Just not to us. So back at the lab, they bring Dr. Hillridge in for questioning, and Grism tells her that they found blood in the blender that matches the dead jogger. She says that when people die, they tell themselves that they will be white lights and angels, and the hard truth is that the insects come immediately and return the body back to the earth. She says the insects will die if they don't have bodies, and so will she. Sorry, what? She was waiting for that line. Like, she practiced that in the mirror. She was... <laughs> she was... She had such a good lead up to it. I mean, I'm sorry, this actress was incredible because she was so creepy, but, like, her character, I was just like, I can't stand her. She definitely rehearsed that in the mirror just to like kind of flirt with Gr I, I'm also convinced that she was flirting <laughs> she's so flirty she was flirting with there was tension <laughs> <laughs> so she then confesses that she has porphyria the madness of King George or the legend of the vampire 
Grism says it's genetic, and she says it's the only thing her father ever gave her. Sick burn. <laughs> Need some aloe for that burn. She had to throw in some daddy issues real quick. <laughs> she- All right, guys, no shame in the game, no shame in flirting. Just don't be accountable when you're doing it. Oh, my God. So the first time it presented, it was after a sunburn. Her lips receded and then her gums. She increased her glucose intake and it was fine. She began a drug regimen that only treated her symptoms and had her spleen removed because it absorbed her blood. But nothing helped. So your spleen controls the level of white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets in the blood. It filters your blood removes old and damaged red blood cells but if the spleen isn't working properly it may start removing the healthy blood cells which is what is happening to her she said she developed lesions on her face and that's when she bought her first dog she said poisons and residue leave too much evidence but when dogs kill they kill clean Grism says she could have tried IV hematin, which is basically an outside source of heme which is used to treat acute intermittent porphyria And she says that human blood is the richest source of heme, and she extracted the organs with the most blood, which is the liver and the spleen and the heart. And she says that if they lock her up, she'll go mad, which is unfortunately a symptom of her condition. But I would agree that she's kind of already mad if she's buying dogs to kill people to take their organs, but... I mean, what do I know? I'm just a tech. She just, like, outlined her whole murder plan, her whole scheme, Mm -hmm. how she's been buying dogs and using them to hunt and kill people, and then she removes their organs to grind up and eat, and then she's like, you can't put me in prison. I'll go insane. And I'm like, you kind of are already there. You already are insane. We know you're just sad, because if you're in prison, you won't see Grissom, and you know you have a (laughs) crush on him. Sorry. (laughs) She'll die in prison, but the people that she'd be feeding off of will live. So she gets arrested, thank God, and as she's being arrested, she says she dried the organs and ground them into into a powder and put them in a protein powder. That's like the, um, the true crime we did, the serial killer with soap. Um, mm-hmm. She ground she, up everything. She would dry the blood and put it in. Little cakes. cakes. Tea cakes. Yeah. Tea cakes. Yeah. Gross. Leonardo... Chianculi, I think. Yeah. Disgusting. So then, if she wasn't flirting with Grism, she really is now. So she says, if you want an empirical experience, there's a fresh shake in my fridge. Okay, we don't see it. Do you think he went and, like, thought about it for a minute? Do you think he's, like... I think he thought about it for a split second, and he was, like, this crazy person. I can't. I'm not... I'm not going to do it. I'm not thinking about it. I'm just thinking about it. I'm not going to do it. And then he comes back with, like, blood around his mouth, and he's like, I did it. (laughs) He's like... And then we get a whole series of Grissom just being a vampire. Yes. Spin-off. <laughs> Spin-off. Grissom the vampire. CSI vampire. CSI vampire slayer. <laughs> Amazing. Oh my god, that's what this episode is. CSI vampire slayer. Yes. The episode title. <laughs> so, back at the carnival case, the team goes to Sandy's mother's house, and they ask to see the clothes the mother was wearing the night that Sandy died. They have a warrant, and they notice that the watch she had on that night is waterlodged. Mother said that it's when she jumped in the water after her daughter, but they noticed the shoes she had on were also dry. Mother said that they dried since yesterday, but Catherine says the lining of the shoes are blue, and if they had gotten wet, the indigo dye from the lining of the shoe would have gotten onto her white socks, but her socks are clean, so she never went into the water. 
She reached into the water to drown her daughter from the car of the ride. When Sandy reached for her, she broke her arm, and Carla, Sandy's mother, she had this new boyfriend and didn't want to have children or care, and she just wanted to start a new life with this new boyfriend, who is, like, there by her side, and he is shocked by all of this. He's also her lawyer, so she then asks for a new lawyer, and then they bag all of her clothes for evidence, and they arrest Carla. This whole episode was such a doozy. This was crazy. Back-to-back insane cases. I remember texting you. I was like, this episode is wild. So many things are happening. When you said that, and I was like, oh, how wild could it be? And then I watched it, and I was like, wow, there was so much that happened. And I also just want to say, this is the second episode of CSI we've covered that had a vampire theme. There was CSI Miami, the Who Brings Wolf Hormones to a Pool Party episode that we did, where it was like a Twilighty theme with like a guy who was trying to be a werewolf and a guy who was allergic to the sun. And now this woman who's literally drinking blood. And I just think someone on the CSI writing team just loves vampires. Like me. They love Twilight. Obviously. The forbidden love story. That was Grissom and the lady <laughs> was forbidden love. He was in love with a vampire. Oh my god, that's gonna be... I'm going to write some fan fiction. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Imagine if I started writing CSI fan fiction. You like, CSI fanfic? You look over at me on my lunch break, and I'm just like typing furiously. You're like, what are you doing? And I like slam my computer shut. Nothing. Like nothing. No <laughs> so speaking of one of my favorite subjects, vampires. The concept of a vampire predates Bram Stoker's Tales of Count Dracula, probably by several centuries. So... But did vampires ever exist? The answer is yes. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm a vampire. Imagine. <laughs> this whole podcast just goes downhill into vampires. <laughs> it's me. I'm a vampire. It's me. Hi. <laughs> I'm the vampire. It's me. In 1819, 80 years before the publication of Dracula, John Polidori, an Anglo-Italian physician, published a novel called The Vampire. Stoker's novel, however, became the benchmark for our description of vampires. But how and where did this concept develop? It appears that the folklore surrounding the vampire phenomenon originated in the Balkan area where Stoker located his tale of Count Dracula. So it's actually, I just learned this recently, but Stoker never even went to Transylvania or any other part of Eastern Europe. I think I looked it up because someone on the Dark Tourism episode said they wanted to go to like the castle that's based off of Count Dracula's castle. So I was looking it up and it was like, oh, Stoker was never even here. And I was like, what? (laughs) He wrote the book. So he turns to theater. Stoker turned to theater and became a businessman of the Lyceum Theater in London. I might be pronouncing that wrong. But it was his friendship with someone named Armin Vambury, a Hungarian writer, that led to his fascination with vampire folklore. He consulted Vambury in the writing of Dracula And the main character, who, if you've read Dracula or know about it, you might know that Dracula is loosely based on Vlad the Impaler, who is a bloodthirsty prince born in Transylvania in 1431. So the myth of vampires, like many myths, is partly based in fact. So there is a blood disorder called porphyria, which we mentioned in this episode, which has been with us for a millennia and actually became prevalent among nobility and royalty in Eastern Europe. So it's an inherited blood disorder that causes the body to produce less heme, which is a critical component of hemoglobin, which we talked a lot about during this episode, and is a protein in the red blood cells that carries oxygen from the lungs to body tissue. So it's really important. And so it seems like porphyria is the origin 
of the myth of the vampire. Because porphyria is even sometimes referred to as vampire disease, which they even did in this episode. They called it that. So, and she was so into calling herself a vampire. She was loving it. She was like, or a vampire. When he was like, oh, the madness of King George. And she's like, or the legend of the vampire. Because that's way more sexy than King George. She just wants to be Edward Cullen. No, she wants to be... Why can't I think of any sexy lady vampires right now <laughs> that aren't from Twilight? Bella Swan. There's one vampire story that I really like called Camilla. That's like a fully female-centric vampire story that's from like the 1800s. And I love it. Ooh. It might be from, yeah, I think it's actually after Dracula. So I think it's from the 1800s. But anyway, it's called the vampire disease. And some of the symptoms of people who have porphyria include sensitivity to sunlight leading to facial disfigurement blackened skin and hair growth so she mentioned in the show that she was getting lesions on her face they also have fangs in addition to facial disfigurement uh, repeated attacks of the disease can cause the gums to recede which she also mentioned which leads to the teeth being more exposed giving the illusion of elongated teeth or fangs blood drinking which there was a lot of in this episode Because the urine of persons with porphyria is dark red, folklore assumed that they were drinking blood. In fact, some physicians, we were talking about how crazy, like, antique medicine is, even recommended that patients drink blood to compensate for the defect in their red blood cells. But this recommendation was for animal blood, not people blood. So it's likely that patients of porphyria only went out after dark because of their sensitivity to sunlight and were assumed to be looking for blood because of their disease and had fanged looking teeth because of their elongated teeth and receding gums. So it's assumed that people saw these people and thought they were vampires. So they also, a symptom can be an aversion to garlic. The sulfur content in garlic could lead to an attack of porphyria, which will lead to very acute pain. Thus, they won't want to be around garlic or eat garlic. And this one's crazy. Reflections not seen in mirrors. So this is a big vampire myth. It's a whole thing, not being able to see your reflection or see yourself in in photographs. So this is kind of sad. So the facial disfigurement in porphyria can become worse over time. And poor oxygen can lead to destruction of facial tissues and collapse of facial structure. So it's understandable that sometimes the patients won't want to look in the mirror. And fear of the crucifix. This is a huge thing with vampires as everybody knows during the spanish inquisition from 1478 to 1834 600 quote vampires were reportedly burned at the stake some of these accused vampires were innocent sufferers of porphyria porphyria patients had good reason to fear the christian faith and christian symbols for this reason acute attacks of the disease were associated with considerable pain both mental and physical and obviously psychological disturbances This condition has been ascribed to the English King George, which is also referenced in this episode of CSI, although subsequent analysts has shed some doubt on porphyria as his cause of madness. So today, our scientific knowledge of porphyria, instead of fearing people who have this disease, we can take better care of them and treat their ailments. So porphyria remains incurable and treatment is mainly supportive. Like she had mentioned in the episode, her symptoms were treated but nothing could really cure it. So pain control can be monitored. Fluids and avoidance of drugs and chemicals that can prevent attacks can be avoided. And some success has been achieved with stem cell transplants. I don't know if Stoker knew about the existence of porphyria or its link to vampire folklore, 
because it was only in 1911, eight years before Stoker's book appeared, that the disease of porphyria, or several types, were classified by H. Gunther. However, physician, researcher, and author George Harley had described a patient with porphyria a few years earlier. So, to end this story, let's talk about the most famous of vampire killers, Vlad III, or Vlad Dracula. He was the ruler of the 1400s in Wallachia. There is plenty of political intrigue, espionage, and betrayal in Vlad's upbringing, but he did not stand for opposition. He was known for impaling his rivals and their armies and was later accused of drinking their blood of their enemies. And I mentioned these books in my dark tourism episode, um, but my family has crime and punishment books that describe different true crimes throughout the history, like throughout all of human history, basically. And I had referenced that's where I read about Lizzie Borden for the first time, but there was also a chapter of like Vlad the Impaler. And I have, there's like a cartoon image of him like impaling people on spikes while like drinking out of a goblet. And I just, whenever I hear Vlad the Impaler, that image like pops into my mind because I would. I would read these books way too young when I wasn't allowed to. So (laughs) there was a whole chapter on Vlad the Impaler. And I'm wondering why I'm intrigued by vampires. It's probably because I got my hands on this book. So anyone found to have conspired against him or his family met a similar fate on the spikes. So Vlad lost and regained his ruler position a few times, but ultimately died fighting and was supposedly dismembered. So, but accounts of where his body or body parts are very. There was one supposed location that was his burial site, but when investigated, it didn't have his body, but the bones of animals. So this lent to the mystery, and some say, to the origin of Dracula of Transylvania. This episode just took the weirdest turn. I love it. Let's talk more about vampires. If you thought we were an autopsy podcast, you're wrong. We're now a vampire podcast. I'm going to start another podcast. We're going to start another podcast. It's just vampire podcast. (laughs) I, yeah, I am fascinated by this. I didn't know all about vampire, like, folklore connection to Porphyria. I didn't really know that much about Porphyria to begin with. Yeah, I know the legend, not the legend, she was a real woman who died tragically, Mercy Brown. Um, She, she's buried in Rhode Island, and it was thought that she was a vampire, but she had actually died of tuberculosis, and um, when they uncovered her body because things were happening in the town and like i think her brother got sick and they thought it was like a vampire curse she had passed away in january so her body was too or it was the ground was too cold to dig a grave so she was kept above ground until they could bury her and also because it was so cold she didn't really decay so they uncovered her grave her like shallow grave or wherever she was kept and they're like oh my god she isn't decaying she must still be alive and it's like no it's just so cold it's just the winter that she can't but it was a whole thing they thought she was a vampire and her grave is actually uh, sorry i keep bringing it up dark tourist site that i really want to go to she's in rhode island but that's, that's super cool i knew about like tuberculosis connection to like vampire myths but i didn't know about this the more you know the more you know so this was a really interesting episode to kind of end this, we tallied a total of one green flag and one red flag. So in our opinion, this episode of CSI ties in terms of forensic accuracy. But I think they did really good in kind of bringing the more sciencey side to it and like talking about a real disease and going into depth about that, even though they went the cannibalistic route. 
definitely wasn't as disappointed as I usually am in one of these episodes. Yeah. But maybe I missed something. I'm pleasantly surprised. I still on the fence about whether or not to give reusing a body bag a red flag. Maybe. <laughs> so if another show brings it up, it's definitely a red flag. Maybe. But let us know what you guys think of this episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Morgue. If you enjoy our podcast and want to learn more about forensics, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod and DM us with any episode suggestions you may have. We'll be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye!